Howdy, everybody. Yes, this is definitely an episode of The Russia Guy, but before I captivate you with another thrilling show, I'd like you to hear a trailer for an upcoming broadcast by my podcasting colleague, Sean Guillory, of the SRB Podcast. He's got something very exciting due out soon, and I hope you'll join me in listening to it. I'm Sean Guillory, the host of the SRB Podcast, a podcast about all things Russian. Back in 2020, I was contacted by a Ukrainian historian, Edward Andrushenko. Edward had discovered a 50-year-old KGB file on an American tourist named Teddy Rowe. When I tracked Teddy down, I expected wild tales of Cold War espionage. What I got instead was a story of a curious young Montanan and insights into the relationship between the Soviet and American people. Teddy Goes to the USSR is a six-part podcast series about that relationship, one that is shaped by mutual propaganda on racism. You know, if there's a lynching episode in the United States, they are all out there on Radio Moscow. Here they are telling you that they're the leaders of democracy. And yet, look at this horrific violence. Consumerism. A lot of the language to discuss Soviet shops is really caustic kind of uses very, very strong adjectives. Pathetic and ridiculous. Unlikely friendships. One of the greatest strokes of luck on my Soviet trip was meeting Lev. I will never know whether he appeared in a seat beside me by accident or whether he was placed there. But he was always the consummate gentleman. And of course, the KGB. When I left my suitcase, I placed that thread or a couple of them in strategic spots. And when it was disturbed, invariably, every time I came back, I knew that I was being watched. So subscribe and listen to Teddy Goes to the USSR, a six-episode series on Soviet life through an American tourist's eyes, wherever you listen to podcasts. Howdy, welcome back to another episode of The Russia Guy. It's been several months since the last show. I've been missing in action here since Russia's February invasion of Ukraine. For the first month, I was working almost around the clock at Medusa. It's now been three months since the full-scale war started. And it seems like the news cycle has settled back into a rhythm of sorts. I'm sure that is an outrage to the people directly affected by the war, but the international public's interest is waning. There's just no denying that. So... Welcome to the new normalcy, warts and all. Since I last spoke on this podcast, since this podcast last came out, I've been banned indefinitely from visiting Russia. A few weeks ago, the foreign ministry added my name to a sanctions list that included Mark Zuckerberg and Kamala Harris, so that's pretty funny. But I will say seriously that I'm actually pretty bummed to hear that I can't set foot in Russia again anytime soon. Maybe for the rest of my life, I don't know. Most of the other people on the list have no ties to Russia, And many of them actually feigned being sad about losing the chance to vacation in the land of Mordor and 
that kind of stuff. I don't see Russia as a paradise, obviously. I reserve those illusions for California, my homeland. But I've always enjoyed my travels there. And the people I've met in Russia have shaped the person I am today. So yeah, it's lousy news. Anyway, I think that's enough housekeeping. On with the show. Today's guest is Dr. Emily Holland, an assistant professor in the Russia Maritime Studies Institute at the U.S. Naval War College, where she teaches and researches subjects like the Cold War, Russia, energy politics, diplomacy, geopolitics, and more. There's a moment in this interview where I forget who Jack Ryan is, the Tom Clancy character played by Harrison Ford in Patriot Games. That's the movie I'm thinking of, by the way. It's embarrassing. I can't believe I couldn't remember the character's name. Not that I'm a big fan of Tom Clancy, but I am a big fan of Harrison Ford. Anyway, embarrassing. In the interview you're about to hear, Dr. Holland describes her background, the nature of her job at the Naval War College, and then she goes on to explain the challenges and the trade-offs inherent in the West's efforts to isolate Russia's oil and gas industries. What struck me about Dr. Holland's insights is how poor nations and poor people in rich nations will be the ones to suffer the most in the energy crisis that the West's boycott of Russian fuel aggravates. This imbalanced burden-sharing raises some difficult moral questions about Western options against Russian aggression in Ukraine. Anyway, food for thought. That and more in the interview. Now, here it is. How did you get to Russia studies? Emily Holland doesn't sound like a Russian name. A lot of people are like first, second, third, zero wave immigrants and so on. It's like somewhat straightforward, although you still have to ask people like, why did you stick with it? But what's what's your road to this this uh, line of work? Well, actually, my dad, when I was 16, gave me a copy of The Master of Margarita. Mm. It was my first exposure to Russia. And I read it and was just enamored immediately. Yeah. I was like, wow, this is crazy. I got super into it, started taking Russian history classes in college. And kind of almost immediately when I got to college, knew I wanted to be a Russian person. I started taking Russian language immediately, you know, went off to Russia to do Russian language training, did tons of Russian literature courses. I was, I was everything. So I was a poli-sci major because at that time I thought, oh, maybe I'll be a lawyer because really I had no idea what I wanted to be wouldn't be at all. So I right. took poli-sci courses, right. but then also at the same time was a Russian language and culture major. And then slowly started to get more into this political science side of it with Russia and just was very, very lucky to um, be in the Cold War seminar taught by Bob Jervis, who was a mentor of mine, mm-hmm. like he had to so many people. And from there, it was sort of a love affair. You know, he really encouraged me. I wrote a lot about the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and got sort of interested in energy politics. And he really encouraged me to keep going with that and to, to get a PhD. And, you know, it was kind of love at first sight. I, that, that, that book really, really started a, a deep romance right. uh, with, with the Russian languages and culture for me. And, you know, that first time, I think going to Moscow in college was, was a really important time for me because, you know, this was an interesting time in Moscow. This was like 2007. Mm. So Moscow was changing a lot. It was becoming pretty glamorous, you know, like they were they were putting Wi-Fi in Gorky Park and right. everything was sort of getting really glamorous and it was a really fun time to be there. So mm-hmm. so that was that was where it all started for me, just that one book. And it's still one of my favorite books to these days. Mm-hmm. Okay. Does that make you kind of like an odd 
person, odd woman out in the field? Because like my understanding is a lot of the Americans, at least, that come to the Russia studies field, they typically come at it either from like a hard kind of security or geopolitics or whatever kind of background, or they're like lit people. And the, the security people are general. This is like a huge generalization, but it's like the security people are more hawkish. The lit people were more apologists or whatever, right? Like to, to put it in like really, you know, like uh, <laughs> broad terms or, or unfair terms or whatever. But you have to kind of like both things going on. Is, do you feel kind of apart from the group or do you feel like you're at home with everybody or how, what's that like background done for you in the field? You know, I do feel a little bit of an odd person out in the field because you know, I think I'm both. Like, I will say, I'm a Russophile. I love Russian literature. Mm. I love Russian culture, Russian arts. You know, it, I love the people of Russia. I really do. But at the same mm. time, you know, I am a security studies person and right. I hate the Putin regime. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, it's a dastardly regime that mm. hurts Russians. You know, I'm, I'm firmly anti-Putin. That's, that's very clear. Yeah. But I do love the Russian people. So it kind of puts me in a little bit of an odd, odd situation. Sure. Because when I come to these big security things, which I do all the time, I'm thrilled to talk about culture, right. Russian culture, Russian food, Russian literature. And I love that aspect of Russia. But at the same time, you know, as I've proceeded more in my career, I'm getting more and more and more security studies yeah. and now I actually work for the U.S. Department of Defense. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I sort of am just skirting the line in both that. But I do, you know, you do, I, I'm definitely around sort of a lot of really hawkish people all the time. Mm-hmm. I was actually just at a really interesting meeting in Estonia that was extremely hawkish. And I kind of found myself, you know, chiming in at times and being like, okay, let's, let's be productive here. Let's not say that all Russians are liars, cheaters, and, mm. and, and thieves, right? Mm. Like, how is that going to be a productive conversation mm. towards, you know, either normalizing the situation or thinking through what long-term Western strategy towards Russia should be? Right. So uh, that's sort of my, my perception on the matter. And I think my background does sort of contribute to that, yeah. What exactly is the Russia Maritime Studies Institute? I mean, and the, all I could, all I really know of the U.S. Naval War College, and I might even be getting this completely wrong, but it's like you. All I could imagine is you're of your job, other than like what you've published, obviously. Is like you're like Harrison Ford in like one of those, um, what are the the book the, the books and the movies where he's like, does he work at the Naval College or whatever? You know what I'm talking about? What, kind of similar. What's yeah. The, what's his character's <laughs> name? I feel like I don't know this. Like it's the. Ah. What, he, what are the movies, like Clear and Present Danger and, um, yeah. you know, those movies, like, is that, is yeah, that who I you are? Know, I don't know. Are you that person? Okay, no, <laughs> I, I wish, I wish that would be really glamorous. Uh-huh. But yeah, so we're the Naval War College. I'm in this department called SWORD, which is a, a really oh. fun name for what we are. The Strategic and Operational Research Department, which is sort of like a mini think tank for the Navy. We do research. We're all research focused. So mm-hmm. the, and the, the Russian Maritime Studies Institute is part of SWORD. So we have a Russian Maritime Studies Institute and we have a China Maritime Studies Institute. And in these groups, we do basically classified research on mm-hmm. Russian military things. So um, part of half of our job is we do classified war games with the students who come through the war college. And then the other half is we do sort of open source research. And that's really my role more than anything. I'm sort of the open source research person on the on the Russian Maritime Studies Institute. And then at the same time, we also do service the Navy. Like we basically answer questions that NAVIR, which is the Naval Forces in Europe, or or the Navy, you know, put forth to us. They say, how can we address this challenge? And we will do that research to sort of help them through that. And at the same time, I do my own research. So I'm sort of the more economic focus person in our group and the rest of the people in the Russian Maritime Studies Institute are really, really hardcore, no like 
really detailed things about Russian weapon systems and Russian radar and all of their, you know, all of their boats. And so I'm, I'm learning that. How far things go. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so I learn about those sorts of things, all the numbers, but I'm really sort of the, yeah. the big picture top down Russian foreign yeah. policy, Russian economic statecraft person. And then as a team, we're able to sort of answer a lot of questions about Russian capabilities and Russian aims. I see. But our group is really awesome. Like SWORD is, we've had a lot of new young scholars from, you know, MIT. Is it SWORD or SWORD? SWORD. Like the, like a, like a blade. Well, there's no W. It's S-O-R-D, Strategic and Operational Research Department. But I wish they... Oh, I, I see. Like SWORDed. Yeah. I wish they had uh -huh. had. Exactly. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> I'm trying to think of like a W they could have put in there and then that would have been really, yeah. really a good acronym. But, be, that um, sounds like something yes. out of like a Marvel movie at that point. I think that might exactly. actually, sword might actually be a thing in a Marvel movie. Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm forgetting all it my is, it movie is. details today. It is, it is. Okay, it's it, it's what replaces Shield, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. We're really getting into it. So okay. we do, we do take that, and in the women's bathroom of our department at yeah. Sword, we have like all of these products that are distributed by the Queens of Sword, and we have like a Marvel oh, um, right. uh, sort of symbol there. Very so good. we do, we do take that. Okay, yeah, wonderful. yeah. We do, we do like that. Um, so yeah, it's a really interesting place. It's a sort of a, it's sort of different yeah. from a normal academic department a little bit, sure. but it's a lot of fun. I, I get a lot of cool opportunities out of it. Right, so. I'm sure. Is it hard to do? I mean, to, I mean, some of your some of your jobs obviously classified and so on, but you're also doing a lot of like public facing work. Is it hard to be like when you're writing things, you're like, oh wait, no, that's that that one's not for the public. Like, do you have to do you have to run things by people, or do you find it very challenging to kind of split your intellectual work that way? A little bit. I mean, the most of the stuff that I do for my public facing work and for my public stuff is all public domain. Like all of the economic stuff, we don't get classified stuff on. That's mainly the military stuff. So mm -hmm. I don't deal so much with the nitty gritty of the military stuff. So I don't have to worry about okay. it so much. Right. All my stuff is pretty much open source that I get through interviews and and you know secondary source and just talking to people. So yeah. that so that's all open source and that's okay. Okay. people that I'm mostly in touch with are kind of more on like the softer sides of, of the social sciences and the humanities, like, I mean, historians and I don't know, lit people and things like that. I mean, that's like, I, don't know, I guess that's my background. I don't know. But those are the people I seem to know. And just eavesdropping on their, their conversations on social media and, and whatnot. My impression is that the field has changed quite a bit over the course of the Putin regime. And on one hand, you know, interest, at least in the United States, has gone up because Russia's scary again and they're doing things globally again. And also just from like a observer's point of view, it's it's interesting again, right? Because they're 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 doing all these like nasty things at home and, and abroad as well. And so uh, it's just like there's more stuff to write about. So while the field has been somewhat reinvigorated, there's also been these kind of like there's been like a crisis of identity among some of the scholars because they don't they don't want to be Russophiles anymore. They they worry that that perpetuates colonial narratives or whatever, and that it's overlooking people that are, you know, like Ukrainians who are being invaded, obviously, and, and you know, Baltic peoples and so on. And so there's this like, there seems to be like a kind of, like I said, a crisis of identity. They're not sure how to identify themselves. They're not sure how to even define or name their institutes and programs anymore. And then they're also worried about, well, is that reflected in like the general public? Either like if they start writing stuff about, I don't know, Lithuanian, whatever, 
Will they be able to get published? Will they be able to get students to come to their classes? Have those things occurred at all in your field? Or because it's security studies, it's like, come on, guys, we're talking about Russia. They're the ones with all the missiles and and the gas and the oil. Like, is it is it has that not really kind of affected you as much? A little bit. I mean, I think for for me starting out, I started doing my PhD in 2010, and I was like, I'm going to do a PhD on Russian politics, and I was really discouraged from that at that point in time. People were like, nobody cares about Russia. Why don't you learn Mandarin? Right. You know, it was I, even this, it's a 2010. It's even after the Georgia War. Even after the Georgia War, yeah, but it was before 2014. Yeah. So you know, right. in that period, it was like a little bit. People were like, what are you doing? You know, the job market's terrible. Why would you sort of yeah. you know cripple yourself by a study of a country that nobody cares about? But I didn't listen because I love Russia mm-hmm. and I wanted to keep going to Russia. And so I kept going. Yeah. And then after 2014, things really started to change, obviously, in the security studies realm, yeah. especially because at that point I was energy. I was actually living in Europe at the time, sort of doing stuff for field work, and things started really popping off in terms of the energy stuff. So there was a tension paid to that. But yeah, I mean, I think today there's a lot of concern about... <laughs> You know, how do you frame yourself as a Russia scholar? And and me, you know, as an American, I work for the DOD. I I, I work in security studies. Yeah. You know, I'm constantly teaching students and people, you know, who some of who are very high position in the U.S. military and, and other foreign governments. I say, listen, I'll tell you about what Russians think. I'll tell you about how Russia sees the world. You don't have to agree with it, yeah. but it will help you. It'll behoove you to understand how they think and how they perceive the world. Right. So I always usually try to give like an overview of this is how Russia views the world. Put yourselves in their shoes. Think about, you know, what NATO encroaching towards their borders might look like to an everyday Russian. Think about what, you know, you know, losing your entire life savings in the 90s twice uh, due to like Western economic programs, what that might feel to like a Russian. Think about, you know, what the what it feels like to have this humiliating experience of your country going from a superpower to basically nothing in the night. So, you know, just think about those things. And then that might help you to understand a little bit Russia, which will help you formulate better responses. So that's always how I like to frame it, because I think strategic empathy is super important. And if we don't know and understand the Russians and how are we ever supposed to deal with them? And like I said, you know, I, I draw a distinct line between the Putin regime yeah. and Russia, you know, and Russian language and culture and history and all those things are separate mm-hmm. from the Putin regime. Obviously, you know, Putin has some like major imperial themes going on right now that you have to sort of work through. But, you know, that's history. Mm-hmm. And so like thinking through history and how to inform today's politics is super important and should not something that we should shy away from. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason why we're having some problems right now is that, you know, as you know, people didn't care about Russia. We stopped doing like a lot of Russian language program. We stopped having a lot of people like me who were studying Russian security studies. Like there's not that many of us right now. Mm. And so you have this divide, especially in terms of foreign policy making of like these, I hate to say it, but really old white guys who, you know, grew up in the Cold War making policy. Yeah. And then there's kind of a dearth of people in between. And there's not a lot of diversity in opinion. There's not a lot of women. There's a few, but there's not a lot of women doing like, you know, sort of Russian security stuff. Mm. So that gives you a pretty narrow voice, mm-hmm. right? So I think getting more people involved in the field and hopefully now that, that Russia is getting so much attention, that will draw you know, more diverse group of people into this study and give more diverse group of people you know, a seat at the table. Do you get pushback when you try to push this like, strategic empathy thing? Because I mean, like my, I, my, my typical audience is Twitter, where if you'd say anything less than Sometimes it's like slaughter every Russian. They're like, well, have you seen this war crime, you know, article? Like, how could you want to, you know, not slaughter every Russian? It's like, okay, guys, like, I'm not even advocating anything. I'm literally just watching what's going on and I'm repeating it essentially because that's people seem to like that. I don't know. Like, it's there's some use in it, I guess. But 
I wonder, like, when, you know, you're a professional talking to other professionals. What's the kind of general feedback? Yeah, you get pushback. You get pushback. I mean, I, uh-huh. I have to tell you, I was just at this meeting again that I can't get over. I was in Estonia and I think I was the only woman there and probably the only person under 40 at this meeting. And it was kind of super hawkish. And I sort of piped up and, you know, added some of the things that I just say. And people sort of looked at me and they're like, yes, but, but Bucha. And I'm like, yes, but that, that doesn't change anything. Like what Russia did in Bucha is horrible. It should be condemned, right? But that does not mean that we should try to understand what Russian people think, you know, what the Russian state might want to do. I and mean, we should try to understand these things in order to better find some sort of outcome, right? And I, think, I assume our ideal outcome would be to, you know, <laughs> stop atrocities in Ukraine at this point. So yeah, yeah. yeah, I do get pushback, especially from older people working in the field at this point. And, you know, there are, there are now some more younger voices coming through and they're not, I'm not saying they're any less hawkish, but I think they have a different opinion. We grew up with a different Russia. Yeah. Right. Then, then people in the cold war, we grew up in different places. And we were going to Russia all the time. We were meeting Russians. You know, I have lots of young Russian academics who are my age, who are in Moscow, you know, working on the same stuff. We've done programs together for years. And like, you know, we tend to both have a, a similar view. We're both critical of both of our governments. They're critical right. of the Russian government. I'm critical of U.S. policy, yeah. right? So we're able to sort of find that commonality that I think is lost from sort of an older generation of Russian security studies people. I'm very interested to see what this younger generation will be like because I wonder, it seems to me like they could be, you know, more hawkish than anyone, any generations that, that's been come before since like, I don't know, the like <laughs> the Cuban Missile Crisis era or something, right? Because like, the environment now, like if you're studying Russia, I mean, I, unless you're a psychopath, you're driven to it out of outrage. <laughs> so Totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, Russia's not, Russia's not making it easy. I mean, yeah, there. I, 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 I'm sure maybe the younger generation will, you know, but it takes a while for these sort of PhDs to sort of get sure. through and, yeah, and start yeah. start working. And so we'll see. But yeah, I mean, the regime as it is right now, I mean, it's really interesting. You know, I've been studying Russia, it goes for like 15 or 15 years now. Everything that we sort of knew about Russia and the Russian state uh, when I started, it just totally gone out the window. Right. You know, you had this idea that like, okay, you know, Putin's a thug. We all knew Putin's a thug from the very beginning. But, you know, he had this sort of pragmatic views yeah. on, you know, financial stabilization and economic statecraft and integration into world markets that were, you know, he was relatively pretty successful at, yeah. right? So you sort of assume this is a baseline. Yeah. But, you know, that's all been completely thrown out the window mm-hmm. since February 24th. I mean, that was really like a shocking turn of events for me to sort of get my head around. Like, I mean, everything I studied, everything I've written about, yeah. out the window. Yeah. And that's been, a, that's been a real head turner for right. a lot of people, I think. Sure. Other than like generations and age, how do you think like being, say, like a woman or being not white changes? Like, it, have you witnessed like that that brings like a different kind of perspective or expertise to the field? Or is it just sort of like, it's just just that there should be more broader opportunities for people? Or do you actually think it would change the nature of like the perspective or expertise that Americans then get from their Russia experts? I think it absolutely changes that. I think it absolutely changes. I mean, there's a real problem with diversity in this field. And it's it's particularly political science and security studies. And it's not just, that's not just like a justice issue of people's access. You're saying it's like we would get different different pictures. We get, I mean, I I see it firsthand all the time when I'm going to these events and you get this like really narrow perspective from these old white men. And, you know, you get some, a few other people, people of color and younger people, and they have different perspectives. I mean, they really do. You know, whether it be somebody from South Asia who has a, you know, completely different perspective of Russia than we do, right? Having, you know, like, say, like, the, the Indian relationship with Russia, have that sort of pragmatic, 
neutrality, you know, cooperation in some areas might lead to different outcomes. And you just get different outcomes. You have different voices. And I think that's super, super important. And I, and I hope that, um, you know, that, that diversity will increase moving forward. I mean, now there are a lot of young women, a lot of my friends who are now sort of high up in national security. There's not a lot of diversity in the schools there. A lot of us who went through Columbia, a lot of my friends yeah. are now, you know, in the administration. Okay. And so I, they're really super smart people, and I'm really glad that they're there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we'll see. I mean, the Biden administration's foreign policy is really interesting. I mean, Biden's off today to Asia. And, right. You know, yeah. Yeah. I, I know a lot of people who are leading his team, and they're mm-hmm. really smart people who have different ideas about how to engage and how to sort of move forward in a world that's really rapidly changing. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm glad that there's some newer, younger voices there. I wanted to ask you a bit about the Western plan to wean itself off of Russian hydrocarbons. You had an article recently where you you said that's great, like let's let's do this, everybody. But you also warned that the way it could happen, or that maybe this is the likeliest scenario because it's kind of the easiest one for the Western nations to pursue, is that it would. I mean, well, I guess like so. The first problem is that it damages Western economies, but that's kind of unavoidable, it seems, if you're going to, you know raise the price of fuel essentially <laughs> but it also it undermines efforts to manage climate change it 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 imposes significant costs on the global south and i'd love for you to explain that more for for listeners and it it pushes pushes washington to deepen relations with the what you call new rogue states and then you also i don't know i don't know if this counts as doing that but you you mentioned that um I think you linked to an article maybe that that pointed out that the Persian Gulf monarchies have basically said to Biden when he's asking for their support in the Ukraine crisis, like, well, you need to scratch our back. We need your support in Yemen, where it's like, ooh, (laughs) that's that's not where we want to be like really active right now. So can can you kind of, that's a very kind of broad summary of the article that I read that that you put out recently on this, this energy crisis. Can you, for listeners... What's going on here? Sure, I'm happy to. I mean, for me, I'm like such an energy nerd. I, you know, I started out as like a Russian political scientist and I got really drawn into this energy world starting doing my field work. And mm-hmm. I basically, like most Americans, had no idea how important energy is as a driver for world events. Yeah. You know, like you just use energy for everything. And I think most people in security studies are actually pretty ignorant on the matter. Mm. You know, I've written, published, and people are like, well, how, why does security what does energy impact security? I'm like, well, uh, energy powers literally every aspect of the national economy. So that's an important one. Mm-hmm. And two, militaries are some of the biggest consumers of hydrocarbons in the world. The U.S. Department of Defense is actually the biggest single consumer of energy in the U.S. So, you know, these are huge drivers for outcomes. And so now, you know, as you mentioned, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has just completely upended energy markets. And I think it's really important to note that, you know, even before Russia invaded, we were already in an energy crisis. In fall 2021, Europe was having an energy crisis. Some states declared states of emergency. This was because sort of, you know, coming back of of demand from the pandemic, um, all sorts of sort of factors. But now we're in a real energy crisis. Like we're trying to remove Russian energy from the market, right? Mm -hmm. The U.S. not only wants Europe to stop consuming it, but they want everyone else to stop consuming it as well, oil and gas. And so when you take away that big chunk of energy, 
and we're already sort of using as much as puts out there, well, there's not enough to go around. Yeah. And that's going to cause some serious, serious pain. I think most notably, first and foremost, in Europe, because they are the most dependent on Russian oil and gas, they're trying to remove that is just causing havoc and you know, will lead to extremely high fuel costs. We're already seeing those fuel costs now over the summer. And we'll probably actually, if they decide to actually remove Russian gas, which which they're really reliant, would cause you know, significant behavioral changes. They'd have to you know, sort of stop some energy intensive industries or roll back production or, you know, turn down their thermostat. Like there just wouldn't be sort of enough to go around. And, you know, my argument, I think it's really important to note is that we're talking about affecting rich countries. So right now, I don't know what the price of gas for you is. It's pretty high here. It's like four, it's around 450 uh, around in the, in the U S and that's really expensive, right? That hurts poor people. It hurts industrial consumers. It hurts farmers, right? Like that's painful to us, but we're a rich country. So our countries can sort of do things to soften the blow. They can slash fuel taxes. They can subsidize public transport. They can do all these things. Well, Mm -hmm. poor countries don't have that luxury. So as all these rich countries are now scrambling to find other sources of energy that are non-Russian, they're driving up the price of energy for everyone. Mm -hmm. And that really hurts poor countries. So we're already seeing it in Pakistan, Sri Lanka. They're like, we don't have any fuel reserves and we can't afford to keep buying. So when they stop being able to purchase energy, that has extremely disastrous consequences on their economies. Mm -hmm. And of course, like most sort of energy policies that we've been seeing, they're extremely regressive. These energy policies are hurting both poor people in West, in rich countries and hurting poor countries disproportionately. And sort of that's what we're seeing now because the policies of most Western countries are Yes, this is bad. Uh, fuel's really expensive. But you don't have to worry about changing any of your behavior. We'll, we'll figure out a way to get it. And so what that does is it just makes everything more and more expensive. There's like these psycho policies in California in which some areas in California are just cutting driver's checks. They're like, here, have $400 a car to, you know, to offset the price of fuel. And they're like, no, when you keep demand high, when prices are already high, that's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. You want to decrease demand. It's like basic economics. Mm-hmm. We're not really thinking very, very forward, thinking forward policies at this point. And I think another thing that's quite disturbing to me is that, you know, the Biden administration came into office with a mandate for climate change. This is one of the main things the Biden administration was going to address. Yeah. And that's just like completely gone out the window right. since Russia invaded Ukraine. You know, we see the Biden administration making overtures towards Iran, Venezuela. Yeah you know, having to deal with the Saudis in a different way and just saying, well, now to, to U.S. LNG and oil and gas, please drill more, drill more, drill more, drill more. You know, what happened to COP26? Biden made a huge speech there in September, and now we don't even hear any mention of it. So that, that's a little bit alarming. And then again, like, this just causes complete realignments of global politics. So, you know, Biden administration making overtures towards Iran to try to get Iranian oil back online infuriated the Saudis. They were just infuriated by this. And so that caused a disruption in that relationship. And so what the Biden administration will have to give them something in order to, to get back. And it's like, do you want to, do you want to be making those things? Are you trading, you know, working with Russia, which is a terrible regime for another sets of terrible regime? And so these are very difficult choices. And I, I don't have the answers because it's a fact that most of the oil and gas producers are pretty nasty regimes. Yeah. So, you know, as long as we're in this system in which we're all increasingly reliant and who's interdependent on oil and gas and hydrocarbons, then you're going to have to make some hard trade-offs. Mm-hmm. But 
I think the, the bottom line at this point is the policies that Western states are making, which are basically don't change your behavior, don't change your consumption, we'll figure it out, are going to really hurt poor people in Western countries and poor countries. And we're already seeing that. Mm -hmm. And we haven't even really started to see the bad effects happen because they take a while to bite and we're not even in peak use season. So summer is when we have like, you know, high gas prices, it's peak driving season. Mm -hmm. So, so that's when we're really going to start to see the effects of these things kind of across the globe. And that's going to be difficult. Mm -hmm. I would say that the only reason right now why we're not in just a complete panic is because China's still on COVID lockdown. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So once China gets out of COVID lockdown and their demand goes up again, then we're going to be in real trouble. Mm -hmm. And so sort of thinking through these issues is a, is a long-term strategic issue, energy security, that you know a lot of countries just sort of relegated to the back burner for a long time. They preferred not to think about it. Mm. You know, in Europe, it's always been an issue, but most European countries, at least the Western European ones, were like, well, you know what? We're going to lock Russia into this interdependence relationship because they're going to be so reliant on our revenues and we're so reliant on the hydrocarbons. Everything will be fine. Mm-hmm. And they sort of ignored the pleas of the Baltics right. and Poland who were like, this is a bad idea. And, you know, now that this has happened, they're, they're scrambling. Mm-hmm. They don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. It's a real problem because getting off of Russian oil and gas, which is what many people believe is the right thing to do morally, is going to cause huge economic problems at home for them. What about the newfound transatlantic unity and, and the, you know, the European unity now. Do you think that's going to hold? Because it seems like there might already be cracks appearing as as the war drags on. And I imagine the kind of initial horror, even though the horrors continue, you know, the human beings have a, only have a capacity to kind of sustain that emotional energy for so long. And after a while, no matter how bad it is, it could become normalized when it's not on your doorstep, I guess, or in your house. And um, with Sweden and Finland asking for NATO membership, we're seeing Turkey and maybe Croatia kind of saying like, well, hold on, like we want our, we want our thing too. And, 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 the, and the other thing that, that comes to my mind frequently is if Biden does not get reelected and we have a Republican leadership come in and maybe it's, it's our, our, uh, the, our previous president returning who has this uh, you know, particular legacy when it comes to, to um, NATO and so on. Do you think that this is this going to hold or do you think that like it's it's not looking so good? I'm pretty skeptical. I think we've sort of reached peak unity and and <laughs> we're we're going downhill fast. And, you know, I, I'm not surprised. Like I'm, I'm an energy scholar. And one of the main points that I've made over the last you know 10 years is that European Union is not there's not a lot of unity because every country has their own interests. And so you know, those interests make for a lot of problems. Like that's why the, US, the EU is kind of not able to do a lot of things. Each mm-hmm. country has different different issues. And so in energy, like we're already seeing that, right? The EU has been trying to get everybody together to ban Russian oil and they've had a lot of pushback. What most notably from Viktor Orban of Hungary, who's sort of a pro-Putin, yeah. you know, right-wing populist. And he said, no, we're not going to do that. We would need a five-year derogation and, you know, hundreds of millions of euros in investment to make that happen. And you, I have to be fair, he's not wrong. Like Hungary is a landlocked country yeah. that is bound by pipeline oil infrastructure to Russia. So, you know, getting completely non-Russian oil would be very difficult for Hungary. So that's something that the EU has to sort of right. deal with and remember. And I think like the sort of secondary issue, which is quite concerning, is that there's no doubt in my mind that Europe's headed to recession. So Europe is going to have a recession and 
that sort of sets up really fertile ground for more disunity. Yeah. Because let's say like, let's say the Germans are now, they're super gung-ho. They have this $100 billion in, in defense investment. Well, what happens when the German economy sort of contracts by 5%? And then are people still going to be supportive of all that defense spending when, you know, they're their social goodies are maybe being cut a little bit. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And then what does that do to the fate of these right-wing populists? You know, like they, they kind of prey on economic downturn and they prey on like the EU being at fault. So like, you know, that might increase the role of of right-wing populists. And then going back to your point, what you just said, I mean, who knows what's going to happen here at home again, like, you know, the economic signs are not great. I mean, we have, historically high inflation, we're probably heading towards stagflation has a lot to do with commodity prices. And so what happens when Americans start feeling that pain? Yeah. Well, you know, they might want to change and that would be really problematic. I mean, the Biden administration has put in tons of effort towards sort of reviving that transatlantic relationship. And I think it's been really successful. Like, I don't think any of us expected the sort of unity that that emerged around February and March Mm -hmm. between the U.S. and, and the EU. But I'm worried that those cracks are starting to appear and will appear more prevalent as the sort of economic situation becomes more grim. And then in terms of Turkey and NATO, yeah, these are these are issues, right? I mean, there's a lot of sort of bad feelings and the EU is a really diverse place. And I think that, you know, Americans, we tend to forget that. We're like, oh, it's the EU. They're all, you know, eating baguettes and, you know, driving German cars and everything's everything's great over there. Uh But, you know, these are different countries with completely different interests and different cultures. And we start to see those differences sort of coming out now. And I'm not sure that it will hold. I mean, already think I think here in America, attention is sort of waiting. And again, as problems at home get worse and this summer, they will get worse. I mean, gas prices are going to go really high. We have a diesel shortage that's going to cause huge problems in U.S. industry and manufacturing and farming. Mm-hmm. So those things are going to start to hit in the summer and the fall, and that will definitely take uh, attention away. And I think like the Biden administration's like Putin's price hike rhetoric, yeah. nobody's really buying that. I think if anybody knows anything, that's not how mm-hmm. global forces work. And that's not really what's happening here. And so I think that the, you know, the Biden administration would be best placed to have a really frank conversation with the American public and say, like, listen, right. You know, this is this is where we're at. This is what we need to do. We're going to try to help you as much as possible. But these are the realities of the new world that we're living in. It's not sort of a very hopeful picture, unfortunately. You've been listening to The Russia Guy, a podcast where I interview professionals and figures in the Russia studies field. On today's show, you heard from Dr. Emily Holland, an assistant professor in the Russia Maritime Studies Institute at the U.S. Naval War College. If you enjoy this podcast and don't mind that its release schedule is ridiculously uneven, please consider visiting patreon.com slash kevinrothrock and pledging your cold, hard cash to reward and remunerate me for my audio efforts. There's some merch to be had if you fork over enough money. Apologies again that the new episodes on this podcast are so few and far between. Thank you for listening and come back soon. Говорят мы пяки-буки, как выносит нас земля. Дайте, что ли, карты в руки, погадать на короля. Ой-ля-ля, ой-ля-ля.